Thank you, Chris. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2. And if you were able to be with us last week, we began a series called Believing is Seeing. And we're going to be looking at John's gospel, not in specific detail. Obviously, in the weeks we're together, we won't be able to cover this entire uh, book from the evangelist John. But we're going to take a flashback this morning. Last week, we were in chapter 20 where we saw Jesus appear in his resurrected body to Mary and Peter and John and the disciples. And we consider the great reversal that Jesus brought about on that day. And so this morning, we're going to flash back to the beginning of of Jesus' ministry. And so if you would, stand with me as we read from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You may be seated. And let's go to the Lord again and invite him to help us as we consider his word together this morning. Gracious Father, what a wonder that we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Open our eyes, Lord, to see his beauty this morning. Open our hearts, Lord, purify our hearts that we might worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And that, Father, you would be glorified, glorified in our hearts and lives, not just today, not just in this hour, but in every hour, I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, in high school, there was a very popular song by a group called Ace of Bass, and it was called I Saw the Sign. It had kind of a catchy jingle to it. Let me, let me read some of the, the main lyrics of this this song, and, and I share this not as a, a parallel to John, but it, it at the same time conveys, I think, kind of the longing of our hearts for some sign, some symbolic evidence. Here's the, the lyrics of this popular song. I saw the sign, and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Life is demanding without understanding. I saw the sign, and it, it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. No one's going to drag you to get it up into the light where you belong. But where do you belong? Under the clean moon, for so many years I've wondered who you are. How could a person like you bring me joy? Under the pale moon, where I see a lot of stars. Ooh, that, that's enough, it's enough. 
I saw the sign and it opened my eyes. I saw the sign. Life is demanding without understanding. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. Now, this morning as we turn to John's gospel, it is actually the polar opposite of what that song puts on the table. You see in that song it says, I saw the sign and then. And yet in John's gospel, believing is the key to seeing. And it is a faith, it is a grabbing hold of who Jesus is and the claims that he makes that is central to our story this morning. We're going to see the first of the sign miracles that Jesus performed at the beginning here of chapter 2. But we're also going to see what follows the first of those signs and the request for additional confirmation, for additional proof. You see, it's confusing and oftentimes hard to interpret the signs. And if we're chasing one sign to the next, we can easily be confused. We can easily lose the clarity that God would desire for us to have. And consider the disciples. After all, the disciples uh, and the Pharisees and religious teachers in Jesus' day, uh, they knew the little slogan, uh, red sky in morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor delight. Are you familiar with that one? And Jesus even declared to them, he said, you know how to tell the weather from the signs in the sky. But when it comes to me, you're clueless. You don't get it. Friends, brothers, and sisters, Jesus is raised from the dead. We are not left wondering what signs God would give us, what communication, revelation God has made available to us. The question in front of us is, will we believe? Now this morning, here in John chapter 2, it, it's going to be a bit of a flashback. Picture Forrest Gump sitting there on, on the bench. He's, he's looking back upon his life and describing the events of his life and, and making them clear. In John's gospel, the evangelist, he sits down at the end of his life and he has shared verbally and, and orally time and time again these precious stories and truths about the reality of Jesus and the great transformation that a relationship with him will bring. And after communicating it countless times, I believe John, he's, he's getting to the end of his life and he's concerned. He, he wants to preserve this testimony. He wants to preserve his witness of Jesus for generations to follow. And so he, he writes this gospel for you and for me. And as we saw last week, he, he writes it so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this morning, as we looked last week at the resurrection of Jesus, we come back to where it first was forecast, where it was first foretold. And, and John, as he begins to describe Jesus' earthly ministry here in John chapter 2, shows us that right away, early on, Jesus told us how the end was going to be. So let's look at that together. And I, I want to just kind of highlight a couple of things that we're going to bump into as we start into this study of John's gospel. And the first one is, uh, and, and, and I, I'm sad to say this, we are often ignorant of the Old Testament. Because of the centrality of Jesus, because of the glory of Jesus, oftentimes we fail to recognize, fail to understand some of the Old Testament imagery that is being unfolded before our very eyes here in particular in the Gospel of John. And so as we read the opening verses of, of John chapter 2, we didn't read them as we stood this morning, uh, but if you look at, at John chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, there's a wedding feast. 
And Jesus transforms water into wine. And perhaps you're thinking, okay, this is where the, the religious leaders would make the accusation that John the Baptist, he was, he was just hellfire and brimstone. Uh, he liked to play a dirge, a, a, a sad song of mourning. And Jesus loved to eat with the tax collectors and sinners. And he loved to, to drink wine and feast. And here we see at this wedding feast, Jesus turns water into wine. And yet if we understand the Old Testament, if we understand what's going on, there's a richness here. For in Joel chapter 2, the Lord in verse 18 became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. You see, there, there had been a, a wandering, a rebellion against the Lord. And in Joel chapter 2, he's jealous and he has compassion, he has pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. See, God is, is promising through the prophet Joel restoration. And wine and the abundance of the land, the fruits of the land, would be part of that celebration. Later on in uh, Joel chapter 3, he says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. There it is again. The prophet Joel says, yes, these are hard, barren years. The, the judgment of God is upon us, but there is a, a joyful time coming, a time when God will, will cause the mountains to drip with sweet wine. And so as Jesus begins his earthly ministry here in John chapter 2, he begins with a small taste, a small taste of a greater future reality, and it involves the provision of wine, wine for a wedding feast. We'll get to that in a moment, but do you see the, the connection between Old Testament imagery and what Christ is doing in the fulfillment of his ministry? It's important. Culturally, the world says the God of the Old Testament, he is this angry, bitter, wrathful, hateful God, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Friends, we need to reject that lie. That's not the teaching of Scripture. The God of the Old Testament, yes, he takes sin seriously, but the God of the New Testament is no different. He poured out the fullness of wrath on his son, as we saw last week. And he did that to preserve and uphold his justice. As we consider this morning the life and ministry of Jesus, recognize it's not disconnected, it, it's not discontinuous with the Old Testament message. It's the fulfillment of it. It's bringing into even greater fullness what the Old Testament was all about. Third, let's talk about the nature of belief. We're going to see here in John chapter 2 the term belief used multiple times. And I think for many of us, there is a, a sense in which we read believe and we think of it in terms of our 21st century American Christian context. And we think that when John says someone believed in Jesus, we kind of imagine praying a prayer, perhaps walking an aisle, uh, we, we envision this uh, once-for-all declaration of eternal security with Christ. And yet, as we read John's gospel, that is not the way John uses the word believe. And I just want to highlight that for you as, as we look at this passage this morning. So, for, for example, in, in chapter 2 here, verse 11, 
It says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then it says, and his disciples believed in him. Now, what, what is the nature of this belief? Well, the, the context has to, to answer this for us. And perhaps the best illustration of this will come a few chapters later in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, it's the great uh, feeding of the 5,000. And on the heels of that great miracle, the crowd, they, they recognize what's going on. When bread comes down from heaven, they think wilderness, they think Moses, they think promised land, and that God is going to now usher in his promises. And John says they wanted to make Jesus king in John chapter 6. And so there is this group of, of thousands that goes. They, they believed in Jesus and they go and they follow him. And yet as Jesus begins to teach them that he is the bread of life and that their allegiance must be to him and, and to him alone, we watch thousands narrow down to hundreds. Because they, they can't grasp how could a carpenter's son make these claims? It's impossible. And so the, the group of thousands who believed is, is now down to hundreds. And then as Jesus continues to explain what does it mean to, to truly embrace him by faith, hundreds turns to 12. And even within that group of 12, there's one, one who will betray his own Lord. So you see, believe, we have to be careful as we read John's gospel, believe doesn't always mean what we think it means. And we have to watch. Are, are these people who are merely attracted to the miracles, the signs, the experience of Jesus? Or are they truly connected to him by faith? In, in the same way, if you were to, to take a, shalt, uh, a salt shaker and put sugar in it, to the naked eye, salt and sugar don't look terribly different. Yeah, the crystal structure might seem a little bit stranger, but to the taste, they're radically different. And so here, with these signs, the, the people are drawn to the signs. They, they like the look of what Jesus is doing. But the reality that he's pointing them to is, is unpalatable. It's like substituting salt for sugar. Last, last. <clears throat> here in, in John chapter 2, we have a cleansing of the temple. And I think it's worth taking just a minute here at the front end to, to kind of think through is this a unique event or is this the same event that the other evangelists write about in what are called the Synoptic Gospels? So if you were to read in Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, Matthew 21, Mark chapter 11, and Luke chapter 19, you would find this exact same type of event occurring there. But there's a, a big difference, and that's the timing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the timing for Jesus cleansing the temple is after the triumphal entry. Jesus has, has come into Jerusalem. He is in the final uh, days of his life. And it's then that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record an incident in the temple where Jesus again purifies the temple. But here in, in John's gospel, I believe this is a second and separate incident. And here's why. First, John himself here in the opening chapter and into chapter 2 does not seem to be trying to put together a theological order to what he's talking about. Just look with me here at, back at chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And then verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
This seems like John is is following and tracing out for us the early days of Jesus' ministry. From his baptism by John in the Jordan River to the gathering of the early disciples, these followers who would commit their way to him, and then to the events that follow here in chapter 2. Notice verse 43 of chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then as we turn to chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding. And so this is describing the early days of Jesus' ministry. He's clearly come down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And now, while he's here in Jerusalem at the Passover, he participates in a great wedding feast and and performs the first of his sign miracles that John records for us, the turning of water into wine. Now, there's an even more important reason that I think this is a separate Uh, isolated incident. I think first, John's language here gives us no reason to doubt it. But even more importantly, what is the charge that the Jewish religious leaders levied against Jesus when they were finding him guilty, guilty deserving death? Do you remember? This man claimed he would destroy the temple. Where did they get that notion from? You see, if we read the synoptic author's account Jesus makes no mention in that affair of anything related to destroying the temple and raising it up in three days. But John here in chapter 2, notice, tells us exactly where it came from in verse 18 and 19. The Jews, they want a sign for why Jesus is purging the temple, why he's turning the tables, driving all the, the animals out, flipping the money tables over. And Jesus says the sign comes from the destruction of the temple and God's rebuilding it, restoring it in three days. Now, if this had happened later in Jesus' ministry, let's say days, maybe maybe as much as a week before his crucifixion and this trial before the, the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, it seems far more unlikely that that statement could get manipulated and twisted. And if you remember the synoptic writers, the Jewish leaders had a whale of a time getting consistent witnesses who could actually testify to what Jesus had said. And so I believe this this actually speaks to two events. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he steps into the temple and and renders judgment on the temple. We're going to see that in a minute. But that later on, he comes back to Jerusalem in his final days and finds it the same as when he first came. You see, the people who claimed to believe, didn't really believe. And so again, at the end of his ministry, he once again purifies the temple before he himself will be the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. So I believe this is a a unique event. As as we read this this morning, don't think of this as just uh, John kind of theologically putting this story where it makes sense to fit his purposes. See this as a, a unique special event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And yet it's one upon which a great irony will take place. For this sign, this communication of Jesus about what he was planning and preparing over the three years of his life and ministry to do will actually accomplish God's purpose, God's promised plan for them through the rebellion, through the rejection of these very leaders who heard him describe and declare what God was all about. Make sense? So we've got that kind of background in front of us. If we were to think about John chapter 2, there's three words that I want to leave you. 
that describe, I believe, what John is communicating here in this chapter. Joy, judgment, jurisdiction. Joy in the wedding feast. Judgment, as Jesus sets foot in the temple at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he looks at the commerce, the hustle, the bustle, the commotion, and he's disgusted. He's disgusted with what worship has become in the place that was supposed to be the place of his father's name, his father's house, we read here in John chapter 2. And as he comes and he renders judgment, we see the question of, what right do you have to do this? It's a question of jurisdiction. Where, Jesus, do you come across with the ability to do the things that you are doing? So we're going to look at those three things in our time together this morning. And first, let's look at joy. Do you, do you see something, though, maybe before we move that slide, Gala, sorry, if we can just jump back. Do you see a, an interesting pattern here? It begins with this amazing provision, a, a celebration, a, a longing for something sweet, something awesome. And, and it's a tangible evidence now, but it points to an even greater evidence in the future. And it begins there. And from this foundation of joy, there's the need for some cleaning up. It's kind of like if, if you're going to have guests over into your house, there's usually a kind of cleaning that goes and takes place that is different than the level of cleaning you're used to habitating when, when you just kind of uh, eat and drink and go about your day for yourself. There's a cleansing. There's a, there's a need for purification. And so then comes the question of what authority, what right does God have to go about doing this work of purifying? And this is a great pattern I think we see all throughout the scriptures. That God first and foremost is after our joy. And yet for us to find joy in him, to enjoy relationship with him, it's going to take some judgment. It's going to take some purification, some cleansing. And once we are cleansed, and as we are cleansed, it calls us to understanding of the authority that stands before us. So let's move on to, to consider for just a moment the joy here in this first sign miracle, the turning of, of water into wine. And here's the point. Jesus provides us with a temporal taste, pointing to the promise of a great celebration to come. Notice in verse 4, uh, as this wedding is happening, everyone's having a wonderful time. It's, it's sweet, there's dancing, there's music, uh, there's wine, but there, there reaches a point in the ceremony where the wine runs short. And so Jesus' mother comes to, to him and says, they, they have no wine. And clearly at this point, she understands something about her son who's able to, to do something about this. She wants the joy to be greater in this event. And so she comes to Jesus. But notice what Jesus says in response to his mom. And don't hear a tone of disrespect in this, but he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And then here's the key phrase. My hour has not yet come. See, here's the point. Jesus, Jesus says, yes, yes, Mary, I, I recognize there's a need here. And it's a need I can meet. And I can bring about even greater joy. After all, everyone culturally knew that you kind of saved the worst wine for last after everyone had enjoyed a little bit. Their taste buds are kind of desensitized. And, and so you can kind of save the, the Boone's Farm type wine for last. And yet, 
Jesus here provides the best wine for the end, and it's, it's mind-blowing. It, it takes this celebration to a whole nother level for all those who were there to experience it. And yet Jesus says, do not be mistaken. <laughs> there is something far greater than this wedding feast here that I am here to accomplish. My death, my resurrection will bring about the payment so that you can enjoy and have an invitation to that wedding feast, to that day. You see, these signs, they are trailers that merely point us to the full feature movie that God is going to write one day when sin is forever done away with and when our world is, is made new and we won't feel the, the groaning of, of sin. Verse 11 makes it explicitly clear. These miraculous signs that we'll look at more in the weeks to come, they are the manifestation of the deity, the, the glory of Christ, and they anticipate a future day, a future day when that glory will be in its fullest form on full display. But we groan, we wait. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes with regard to the connection between some of the, the temporal problems, the struggles, the trials that we face, and yet the glory, this eternal weight of glory that we long for. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis says, I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of, ad of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I'm overwhelmed and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart that my true good is in another world and my only real treasure is Christ. You see, in the miracle of turning water into wine, Jesus wants them to see that the sweetness, the joy of that event is only to be found in him and in a future day when all the pain, all the sorrow will be done away with and in a future day when, when the true groom will come for his bride. Next, let's consider judgment. Uh, from this foundation of joy, from the manifestation of his glory, through this miracle of turning huge jars of water into wine, Jesus turns and, and goes to the temple and says in verse 13, it was the Passover of, of the Jews. And this is one of three Passovers that John will describe in the narrative of this gospel. And as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, uh, he walks into the temple and, and he sees kind of a, a Walmart of sorts going on. If you can try in your imagination's eye to picture the temple precincts, uh, the court of the Gentiles was this large outer area where worshipers could gather and particularly those who were not Jews could gather for worship. And certainly what's happening here has some very practical roots to it, doesn't it? After all, not everyone lived in Jerusalem. It's not like here where you can go and gather to corporately worship in a very convenient, close geographic locale. Rather, these people had to come from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, they would come to Jerusalem and they would need animals for sacrifice. 
And as you can guess, if you've ever traveled abroad to to places like Japan or Europe, uh, you need to do currency exchange to actually acquire the things that you would need in those faraway places. And it's no different here in the temple. These travelers, these worshipers have come. They're in need of animals for sacrifice. They're in need of exchanging money so that they can pay the temple tax and, and generously give to God and honor Him through their financial gifts. And so in order to expedite and make more convenient for all of these things to take place, those in charge of the temple had set up an area, and now this area, perhaps it started at at one point, we don't know for sure, but I, I envision it started outside the temple precincts, kind of a small affair. And next thing, as business grew and it it was required for more and more animals to, to do this, as the glory of Herod's temple became more and more known and and prominent throughout the area, this business starts to invade and really take over the entire court of the Gentiles. And so imagine if if we were sitting this morning and you heard the and the smell that comes with that sound. And and imagine if there was, I'll give you two, two, two drachma for that. And the bartering and the trade that's happening And this is now, if you're a Gentile in particular, the scene, the setting, the context for worship. (laughs) That's no good. I don't know about you, but I'd find it very distracting to sit in that kind of an environment. See, here's the point. Jesus passionately protects the purity of worship. And so as he steps into the temple courts and he sees what is happening, he is enraged. This is no meek and mild Jesus, folks. He is MacGyver. He takes and and fashions this cord because he's got to get the animals out. And so he fashions a whip. He drives the animals out. He takes the money changers' tables, flips them over. He's committed, committed to restoring peace and worship to God's people. Now here's here's what I think is, is the subtle aspect of this. You see, practicality had trumped purity. There is a very real need that these money changers and sellers of animals are trying to meet. There was a need for sacrifice, a need for worship. And yet, in practically trying to meet that need, the forms in which they did that became an utter distraction. It actually led God's people away from pure worship and instead led them to convenience over care, to distraction rather than delight. Think back with me to an earlier time, the time of David. And as David in his many conquests is really being established and appointed by God as as the king who would put God's name in Jerusalem, and David has this glorious dream to build a house, a house for his God, And God says, no, David, I'm I'm going to take that word, this this word for house, and I'm going to turn it into a dynasty. I'm going to raise up a son, an eternal son, from your line. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we read, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And here's the key, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He shall build a house for my name. Who's going to build the house? 
Now there's, there's some sense in which Solomon is going to be the most immediate fulfiller of what God is promising to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But Jesus here, also David's son, is making an even more significant claim. You see, Jesus is making the claim that he is the temple. He is the center of worship. Three Old Testament connections here specifically. Uh, the disciples, uh, and again, picture John years later reflecting back on these events. They connect it to Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, verses 8 and 9, we read, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. There's both a, an outcast by those around them, in Psalm 69, but also this zeal, zeal for the purity of worship. Malachi chapter 3 is, is another reference I think is in view here because it, it connects to John the Baptist and his ministry in chapter 1, but then here in John chapter 2. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when it appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord." Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And then Zechariah chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. You see, Jesus, in stepping into the temple and seeing the desecration of worship, is passionate for the purity of his people. Now let me just spend a minute to ask us, in what way are we more caught up in the convenience of worship? In what ways are we more concerned with the practical orchestration, with the forms rather than the substance of worship? Does it take the form of what type of instruments are played in our worship? Does it take the form of the dress that we have in our worship? Does it take the form of the chairs, the seats, the building, the, the view? All of these things are well and good. But when they begin to encroach, when they begin to distract us from the delight in Christ, there's a need for purity, and Jesus is passionate about that. Lastly, jurisdiction. As Jesus comes in and he, he purges the temple, we find that the religious leaders, the Jews in verse 18, say, what sign do you do to show us you're able to do these things? They wanted to know, what right do you have? Now, it's interesting, uh, these religious leaders don't treat him like some vandal that has no uh, substance whatsoever to his claim. It's not like this is some vandalism, some uh, flagrant act that has no substance. There's something semi-legitimate that they see here. Otherwise, they wouldn't uh, argue and reason and challenge for a sign to his authority. They wouldn't need one. They would just act, take him, lock him up, and deal with it. But they don't. 
They, they want a sign. And here's where Jesus takes and, and he moves them from thinking about the temple in terms of this building, this structure, this form to himself. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, uh, much like Nicodemus, who's coming in just uh, a few more verses in chapter 3, like the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, later on there's going to be confusion as Jesus uh, transforms the Sabbath in John chapter 5, and then this bread from heaven in John chapter 6. Jesus, what right do you have? And here we see the death and resurrection of Jesus establishes his rightful place as our true connection to God. Deity defines dominion. Person defines purview. Resurrection determines rights. Character warrants control. It's who Jesus is. It's his claim to be the Son of God that allows him to come in and make the judgment he's just made on the purity of the temple. And yet, at the very same time, Jesus wants us to recognize he is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. And this is no surprise. In John's prologue, he says in verse 14, the glory of God has tabernacled among us. Look back with me at, at John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt, my translation says, but a better word is tabernacled among us. And we've seen his glory. Notice verse 18, though. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at, his fa- at the Father's side. He has made him known. That word is, is the word we get exegesis from. If you've heard of exegesis, the explaining out from of Scripture, Jesus has explained. He's exegeted the Father for us. And here in John chapter 2, Jesus says, through the destruction of this temple, my body explicitly on the cross, and then the resurrection vindicating that the payment was acceptable. I am the true temple. I am the meeting place with God. If you want access to God, if you want your heart caught up in worship, I'm the one. William Temple has a great quote on worship I want to share with you. He said, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Do you see how Jesus is doing this very thing here in John chapter 2? He is taking their worship, a worship that is caught up in uh, the forms and the roteness of tradition, and he turns the tables and says, God is instituting a new way, a worship that is centered upon me. And as John writes to you and to me, we live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Will we worship? Will we come to Jesus as the true temple, the true meeting place with God, the only one through whom we can have access to God? The writer to Hebrews has much to say. In Hebrews chapter 10, look with me on the screen at what the writer of Hebrews says about our great Savior. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
let us draw near. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a great and faithful high priest through whom we can draw near to God. And yet, we, we live in between the, the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, atoning for our sin, and his glorious resurrection, proving that it, it was acceptable, that God's justice had been satisfied. And yet, we long for a future day. Listen to what John, writing in Revelation 21, says about a future day of worship. He says in John 21, verses uh, 22, through 27. And I saw no temple in the city. He's speaking of this new Jerusalem, a, a new city that's come down. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, in heaven there will be no temple, only the glory of God and of the Lamb. Do you long for that day? You long for that day when we'll see our Savior face to face. By faith, are you laying hold of him so that your heart can worship? Worship as you're in the midst of your work week. Worship as you're in the midst of working through conflict in relationships. Worship as you go about loving those God puts around you. Worship as you bear witness to Christ, the one whose body was broken on our behalf and whom God raised from the dead. Let us worship him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, all glory and honor and dominion and power go to the Lamb, this precious Lamb of God, your Son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, taking on human flesh, and who came and suffered death, suffered and drank the full cup of your wrath and drank it dry so that we would never experience your wrath and that we might have peace, we might have reconciliation and restoration, we might have the purity of our own hearts preserved forever through his sacrifice. Oh Lord, help us to worship him. Help us to seek you through him, that our lives would glorify your great name. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now would you stand with me for the benediction? Our benediction this morning will come from Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all those who would worship the Lamb would say, Amen.